as I read 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 12, I'll read. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. For this moment, we thank you for the truth of in Christ alone, our hope is found. Christ alone, who has delivered us from death, who has defeated death, who has ascended and who shall return. And Christ alone, in whose spirit we have and in whose spirit now we ask to come and give us sight where we are blind. Give us ears to hear where we are deaf. Soften our hearts where we have grown callous that we might hear, that we might see, that we might believe. And Father, I now pray that whatever proceeds from this mouth that is not of you would fall to the floor and remain unheard. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Lord Jesus, you said heaven and earth may pass away, but your word will never pass away. So Lord, would you speak to us today? Lord, please speak. Father in heaven, speak. Your children are listening. Have mercy in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. So last week at verse 8, we really addressed and centered on um, not being ashamed, you know, being unashamed in Christ. And I told this story about how I made my parents like walk like 50 yards behind me in middle school going, some of you need to go back and listen to that, um, to know what I'm talking about, but we can't be ashamed of Christ. And, uh, Paul comes to his young protege, Timothy, to, to encourage him, to admonish him, to exhort him not to wane, not to, not to drop the baton that he was being passed by Paul. Remember where we are? We're at the very, very end of Paul's life. This is the last letter that the Apostle Paul writes, and he is writing from a dungeon of a prison in Rome. He has had his preliminary hearing where he did not get good news, and he is waiting his final sentencing, if you will. And he fully expects that at his final sentencing, he will be sentenced to death. And he was correct that by... The late 60s A.D., the Apostle Paul lost his head in Rome for the sake of Christ. He had sent Timothy on ahead to Ephesus years before, as we talked about at 1 Timothy. Timothy, in that span, had been in Ephesus. He had worked in the church there. He He himself had been imprisoned at one point. Having been released, he goes back to Ephesus. And Timothy, as we kind of glean from 
2 Timothy predominantly from this book, this letter that's written by the Apostle Paul. Timothy is of a different disposition than the Apostle Paul. He's of a different disposition than maybe of the Apostle Peter who was ready to, to cut off, you know, cut people up in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Remember that story where he pulls the sword out where they're about to uh, arrest Jesus or maybe a different disposition than the sons of thunder, James and John, who are rather fiery. They're ready to call down fire upon people who did not believe upon Jesus. Timothy is of a different sort. He seems rather by nature... I don't want to extrapolate too much, but maybe a little introverted, maybe a little quieter, prone to being timid. And he's definitely even now, uh, he's still young. And so he is a man who is undergoing, he has the, the greatest charge a person can carry to represent the Lord Jesus in the Lord's church. And he's taking fire for it. He's taking fire inwardly by, from false teachers. We addressed a lot of that in 1 Timothy, but we'll have that same theme here in 2 Timothy. He's, he has people that are going against the gospel, who are corrupting the gospel, who are twisting the nature of God, who are leading people astray. And he, as the one who is commissioned by the Apostle Paul, is the one who must stand in the gap and say, no, this is what God has said. That's hard work. And at nature, that's con- at, at times, that's confrontational work. Not in a quarrelsome sort of way, but you can't let it go. But not only is he being surrounded and maybe hounded within the church, the church, the people who are exterior, external to the church and the culture are hostile to Jesus. We see this in when the gospel first comes to Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. Where people begin to riot because Artemis is being, and really it's about their money, um, but because the, the false goddess Artemis is being robbed of her glory by Christians, people turning to Christ, they, they riot. And so you can get a sense from this and from other things that the Apostle Paul says throughout the New Testament that there are fierce wolves in Ephesus. We see that Ephesus is a hard place to be a Christian. And if it's a hard place to be a Christian, you can be sure when it's hard to be a Christian, it is certainly hard to be a Christian leader. And so Timothy is surrounded and you can understand that this man who is prone to to timidity or you don't want to outright call him a coward, right? But he's prone to a, a quieter disposition and he's surrounded by adversaries and difficulty it would be much easier to kind of fade back it would be much more comfortable to fade away and Paul has to come to him at the very almost at the very outset after giving thanks for Timothy he says you can't be ashamed you can't be hiding God has not given you a spirit of cowardice he's given you a spirit of love and power and self-control but if you're, if you're not going to be ashamed, you have to be prepared to share in suffering. And I said last week, there are three times where in this letter, Paul encourages, admonishes, exhorts, commands Timothy. You've got to step into the suffering that, that God has for you. And if there's anything that is so at odds 
with our normal understanding of Christianity in America, it might be this. That Jesus has said, if they hated me, they will hate you. There was a time in America where that might not have seemed true. But I promise you today is very different. If you take a biblical stance on just about, I'm not even, you don't even have to pick the hot topics of the day. You know, LGBTQ or transgender, all that's under that umbrella, right? But um, you could just say that Jesus is the only way. Or if you even posit or argue that there's a heaven and a hell, that you're accountable to the God who's made you. You'll find opposition to what looks like the slightest of Christian convictions. So being unashamed is not just reserved for Timothy in the 60s AD. It must be for us as well. Stepping into sharing the sufferings that God has for us by the power of God. is something that's for us as well. And it's not just suffering, right? It doesn't just say, hey, go be a jerk on social media about your political convictions. And then people give you a hard time about it. You can't claim martyrdom. For Jesus' sake. He says, share in suffering for the gospel. Don't suffer for being a knothead. Suffer because of your allegiance to Jesus. So for some people, you will be too conservative because of your allegiance to Jesus. For other people, you will be too liberal because of your allegiance to Jesus. You must be a what is it? What's the verb of that? You must hold your allegiance to Christ. In verses eight, I mean, verses nine and ten. Paul begins to unpack if, if you must be unashamed and you cannot, um, you can't fade into the background. You can't sink into the woodwork. You've got to press into the difficulty of being a Christian right now and right here. What are some necessary tools that you need to remember if you are going to be unashamed and prepared for the difficulties ahead? And just like Paul does, he he, two things happen. First of all, in order to stir Timothy into this difficult task, he points him to the gospel. If you're going to be unashamed. If you're going to hold fast to Jesus. If you're going to undergo the difficulty of following Christ in this day and age. You must press into the gospel of Jesus Christ. And whenever Paul jumps into the gospel of Jesus Christ, he always erupts into worship. It's always doxological. If you want a vocabulary word of the day. It's where we get doxology. See you. Our, this is our doxology fan crew. Some of y'all see uh, that it's worship. Your doxology, doxology comes from the Greek word doxa, doxa, which is glory. We're declaring the goodness and the glory. It's, it's worship. And whenever Paul gets into the gospel, you can tell that the gospel of Jesus is not just an academic pursuit for him. It is, it is life. It's everything. What Christ has done and what he's doing. And he can't get over it. And what we see is that the gospel did not start when Jesus was born. 
The gospel for you and God's good purposes for you didn't just start the day that you believed upon Christ. How are we going to be unashamed and ready for suffering? But we must be people that are built upon the good news of Jesus Christ. All of it. So in verse 9, after he says we have to share in verse 8, uh, share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, by the power of God. Verse 9, who saved us? So God, he's talking, the who here is God. So God has saved us and God has called us. And these two words, what he's talking about here is, is particular to Timothy, but it's also, this is for all Christians. If you're a Christian, if you're born again, if you're in Christ, if you've been forgiven of your sins, you've left the domain of darkness, as Paul says in Colossians 1.13, and been transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son, then you, these are true of you. You have been saved. You have been called. God who has saved us and called us to a holy calling. That could be also with a holy calling. So that the calling of God is holy because it comes from a holy God and it it comes out as a holy life. The holy call of God of the holy God calls you to a holy life. So God saved us and called us to a holy calling. That sounds like church speak, right? That sounds like something that should be in a sermon. What is he talking about, though? Right, I've just kind of elicited, uh, I mean, I've, I've just shown a little bit of what it means to be saved, right? You've been, you've been delivered. You've been rescued. If you're a Christian, you were not rescued at one time. You were enslaved, not just to sin, not just to death, but to the entity known as Satan. Satan is not just a like malevolent cloud that blows through humanity. It's a, it's a fallen angel. He's a fallen angel who has many, many, many fallen angels with him that seek to destroy what God is building and has built. And scripture's clear that if you're not in Christ, if you're not bound to Jesus, you're bound to Satan. There's, there's really no, you want a gray area where you can be your own man, your own woman. I stand on my own two feet. I pull on my own pants. I tie my shoes. Some of you guys are at the Velcro stage. That's okay. You can be there. It's cool too. You go from Velcro to laces to Velcro. Or slip-ons. You do a stand on my own. But God has made us as dependent creatures. He's made us as dependent creatures. That we find our greatest expression of who we are in dependence upon Him. But when we rebel against him, we try to remove ourselves from him. We inevitably fall into the trap of Satan. And we need the mighty hand of God to pull us out and to save us. He calls us and his call is effectual. His call does the work of the call. He brings us out and sets us on a path. I said I'm going to get through more than one verse. Mercy, what have I done? Who saved us and called us to a holy calling. So it's a holy life. Let's keep clip along. Uh, not because of our works. Why? 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 How could God? And this is, this is a question that we don't ask enough. How could the holy God save us? Why would he save us? I've often, I've, I've heard it said, right? The, 
Um, God is good, but the problem is, is that you're not. God is righteous, and the problem is, is that you're not. God is holy, and the problem is, is that you're not. Why on earth would God save you? Why would he save me? It's not because we're so swell. It's not because God looked ahead and said, well, they're going to be good. They're going to be good. They're going to do good things. I'm going to save them. God's call to save is not reactionary. It's proactionary. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. God saves and calls you. Everybody say not. That's not, that's not, this is not rhetorical. Not because of my works. As I was telling our, I'm teaching the BBC Connect class and and you're all welcome. Um, it's, we've had, we have members that, are, that came this morning. We have people who are interested in membership. Um, <clears throat> it's a great way to learn uh, just about the class and kind of hear about where we want to, I mean, about the church and where we want to go. And, and I was saying that this is the temptation. It's always the temptation. Works are always the temptation. Because that's our natural default mode. It was the natural default mode of our first parents, Adam and Eve, right? They do this and live. Don't do that and live. If you do that, you die, right? It's all, it, was a, it was a relationship based upon their works. And of course, we know how that went, don't we? It did not go well. Sin was brought in, they rebelled, and now we're in the position where we cannot <clears throat> work ourselves out of it. But left to ourselves, you look at all of the world religions, this is, as somewhere, this is the essence of the message. Do this and live. Message of the cults, do this and live. Message of the society, do this and live. They don't, they don't want to put religious trappings on it, but they have religious convictions. Secularism at its base still has religious convictions. Do this, live. Do this, succeed. Do this, progress. Do this, whatever. And the gospel tells you the exact opposite. You can't do this. You can't save yourself. You're not righteous in and of yourself. And if you continue to try to be righteous, you continue to try to deliver yourself or you continue to, to try to deliver the human race apart from God, it's filthy rags and heaping up condemnation upon you. You're making it worse when you try to be good without God. So why does he save us? If it's not because of our potential it's not because of our, our goodness. It's not because of our works. Why does God save? And this is, this is the foundation that Paul is building for Timothy to not be ashamed. Don't be ashamed of Jesus. Don't be ashamed of this gospel. Why? Because God has saved us according to his own purpose and grace. It is all of God and it's all of grace. There's a, a Spurgeon book. It's a little booklet. C.H. Spurgeon. You should, it's public domain, so you can go Google all of grace, Spurgeon. You're welcome. Free. Free to the whoever wants to get it. Uh, but it's all of grace. It's because of his own purpose that he intended to. 
Right? God intends to save and to call those who are unworthy of being saved and called. And he does so out of grace. That his purpose is out of grace. Why would God save you? Why ought you not to be ashamed? And why should you share in sufferings? Because God has saved you because of his benevolence and unmerited favor toward you. That the light of Christ has looked upon you and said, come alive. Could you imagine? This is, this is gospel, y'all. The God of glory has said, in Christ, live. How could we ever be ashamed? No matter what men and women, presidents, dictators, congresses, blogs, news anchors say, how could we be ashamed of the God who in his infinite grace chose to save us? It's nonsensical. It doesn't make sense. He saved us with his, because of his own purpose and grace. Now here's where it gets a little mind-bending. He saved us according to his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ before the ages began. Literally before time eternal. Before time eternal, God directed his purpose and his grace to save his people. That he gave them grace. And if we've already established, it's not because of their goodness. It's not because of our merit. It's not because of our potential. This is, a, this is something that God does before time exists. How could it be conditioned upon anything we do? There's no time in which or space in which things to do and people to happen. Mind-bending, I know. But God in eternity passed. Before ever he said in the beginning. Before ever he said, let there be light. The Father and the Son and the Spirit got together and said, we're going to save Three persons, one God. I've heard it, I heard it said like this, the Trinity like this this week. Uh, three who's, one what? Three who's, one what? Maybe that's confusing to you too. But, um, but that God within the counsel of himself. Just, I don't, I don't have the words. Give me all of the Oxford English Dictionary. I want to give you everything I've got. Because this is profound. And it's beyond us. Before the foundations of the world were laid, before the seas and the mountains and before the volcano, whatever else is out there, before the creatures and before the God hung the sun and the moon and the stars, he says, I'm going to purpose in grace to save. You can't tell me that God is reactionary here. You can't tell me that God's like, oh, no, never saw it coming. What are we going to do now after Genesis three? That's not what we see here. We see God, a God, the God, only God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and eternity past, 
perfectly in control, perfectly executing his purpose, even in time and space and even through and after the fall. He saves us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose, his own grace. She gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So God executes his purpose. And his purpose originates in eternity. What God has done in your life, do not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus. Be delighted like the apostles in the book of Acts who, who left after they've been persecuted for following Jesus. They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for his name. Why? Because God in eternity past directed his gaze at you and said, you will be saved. What more assurance could we have? It's not left up to the the winds and the vacillations of humans. We go up and we go down. We have good days, we have bad days. But God says, I will save you. How could I ever be ashamed? How could I ever shirk the suffering, the difficulty of being named with Jesus? And this idea of God attending His purpose with grace, it shows up All in the New Testament. You can see in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, that, and it's the same, you're going to get hung up on the word, but in love, so he attends his purpose, his eternal purpose, he attends it with love. Here he attends it in 2 Timothy, he attends it with grace. There in in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, he attends it with love. In love, he predestined us before the foundation of the world. In Titus chapter All y'all's faces change. Oh, he's talking about that. Titus chapter 3, verse 5. He saved us. It's almost verbatim, just with a little turn. He saved us, not because of, of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. So he saves us. His purpose is according to grace. His purpose is according to love. And his purpose is according to mercy. None of that is God saying, I'm going to react in some goodness that the creature gives to me. In his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. There's a lot to be said about that text, too, which we'll get to one day by God's grace. But so he gave this to us before the world began. And so it was invisible, right? Because we're finite or we're finite we're we're finite. It's not how you say that word. Um. Uh, We're finite. And so we we don't see the eternal counsels of God. And you're not supposed to. You're not supposed to see the eternal decrees of God. Where he is rolling out his purpose in this world. That the things that are written down are for us. And the things that are hidden belong to God. God. So we don't know, we, we know of testimony about his purpose and grace in eternity past, where God operates, where he, he puts out his purpose, where he chooses and works, but we don't see it. 
You can't, you can't go through the population and say, them, 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 not them, 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 them. We don't have it. Mark, like, we don't see it. The only way that we see the eternal purpose of God come to bear is first with the appearing, the manifestation of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 10. And now which has been manifested. So his, he saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave in Christ before the ages began, and which now he's manifesting. So the appearing of Jesus is the manifestation in time and space of the eternal purpose of God to save his people. That Jesus appearing, and by appearing I don't mean like Casper the friendly ghost, but I mean like he shows up on the scene. The eternal God, who is invisible and unseen to us, makes himself known through the Son, Jesus Christ. Which now, this purpose and grace is now manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. He's all grace. He's all mercy. And look at what He does. Look at what He does. And this is all... I wish I was a better preacher. Again. This is all the eternal purpose and grace of God flowing out. And it comes to this punctiliar moment. This point where Jesus Christ is born. Born of a virgin. Born under the law to save those who are under the law. And notice what he comes to do here at the cross of Christ. You have the eternal counsel of God manifested. All the unseen intentions of God displayed. How can I know that God is for me? What is God thinking in eternity displayed? What would God have for me? What ought I to do? He shows up. Here, the eternal one gets fingerprints and a heart beating and lungs breathing. To do what? The latter half of verse 10 is, it doesn't show up in your English translation, but it's called a, a men-day formulation or structure. Men-day is just like we would say on, the, on one hand and on the other hand. So men are on one hand, he abolishes death. And on the other hand, he brings life and immortality to light through the gospel. So that in the one action of Christ and in the one purpose of Jesus, one purpose of God in Christ... You have the abolition of death, the abolition of death, and the display of life and immortality through the gospel. Through one gospel, one good news, you see the destruction of death, and you see the transformation of death into a vehicle of life and immortality through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And that was the purpose of God before the ages began. Could you imagine? I can't, but we're going to do this together for a second. Could you imagine the Father saying to the Son, I'm going to give you this people. They're going to be yours. But in order for them to be yours, you're going to have to die for them. 
back up a step, you're going to have to become or take on, if we're going to be more precise with our language, take on a human nature. Be subject to their frailty. And you're going to suffer. It's going to hurt. But this is our purpose in grace. And Jesus from eternity. I don't know how old you think the earth is. We're not going to definitely not get into that today. But it's, it's a long time before you were born. And yet even then. Even then. Even then. Before the sedimentary rocks and quartz and diamonds formed into whatever they are, before, however long it took, before there were eagles and falcons and before there were pterodactyls and what other dinosaurs and what other creatures, before there were heavens and earth, God had his, your name on his lips. How could we be ashamed? How could we be ashamed of this? You are on the heart of Christ from eternity. And you're thinking, look at my life. I'm nobody. There are days I feel like I'm less than nobody. And it's okay, because you probably are, but in Christ. I don't, it's gentle. But, uh, but we know we're sin-laden, and we're so easy to wander. We lose sight of Jesus. We, we miss the point. We grumble and complain and murmur. We're slow in following Jesus. We're, we're too deliberate when we should take action in following Him all these ways. And yet, in the infinite, eternal purpose and grace of God, you were there. You know, there's that song that, like, you know, He did it all for, above all, He thought of me on the cross. You were on Jesus' mind much longer before the cross. You were on the mind of the eternal triune God before you ever took a breath, before you were ever, your great-grandparents, your great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandparents took breaths. You were on the very thought and heart of God that he said, you will be mine. And I'm going to shed my blood to rescue you and shed my blood to deliver you. What greater assurance and hope do we have except for this? We cannot be ashamed we cannot be we can't run away from Jesus. Jesus can't be trailing behind us. Look at what he's done. Look at who he is. And he abolished his death. He destroys the works of the devil. First John tells us that this is why the son came. The writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 2:14 that he came uh, to to destroy death and the one who holds the power of death, namely the devil. He abolishes death. The, the death is the, the greatest implement of tyranny that the enslaver Satan would wield. And through the death of Christ, it is re- yielded null and void for Jesus' people. It holds no sting for you. It becomes a doorway of glory, saint. He abolishes death, but it's not just the the negative of it. He removes the penalty of sin. He removes the threat of death. He removes the condemnation due for our sin. And he gives life. Immortality. He brings immortality to light. This world saddled with its darkness and its brokenness and its wickedness and its death. And we look to Jesus and all we see is light and immortality. Immortality necessarily means that this is spiritual life. That death, physical death may be experienced, but 
Spiritual life is there enduringly, uncorruptible in the hands of our God. How on earth, right? How on earth would God say, you're on my heart from eternity? And he knows all your stuff. All of it. All the things that you don't want to tell anybody else about. Nobody else, nobody else knows this. God knows it, and yet he says, you're mine. How on earth do you think that he goes through all of this, all purpose? He's in love. He predestined you from the foundation of the world. And then you come into this life and you have a bad day. You know, you holler at the person who's going 45 in the left lane. You say some words you shouldn't say. And then you come home and you're a grump and you're grumpy with your kid. And you're grumpy with your wife. And, you, and that happens for the you know, like you have this whole week. And you're thinking, like, am, I ever, am I even a Christian? How on earth do you think that the eternal God has laid hold of you in eternity past? In his purpose, in his grace, he said, I'm, you're mine. That you, with your little puny self and your bad day, is going to somehow break his grip. Give me a break. Come back to the gospel. Quit looking to yourself. Yeah, repent of your sin. All that sin, garbage. Repent of it and run back to Jesus. You can't lose what he's given you from eternity. You live it out. Boldly, clearly. You take stands for Jesus at the dinner table. In your church, if necessary. In your community. You learn the gospel, you press into the gospel to make the gospel of Jesus known. He has manifested his purpose and grace with the appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The implication, unstated thus far, is that there is no other Savior. God's purpose and grace from eternity has a singular manifestation, and it is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, crucified, buried, risen, and ascended. There is no other Savior, and there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. Turn to Christ today. If you have never trusted in Jesus, look at the... You have gotten a... Look at what he's done. Look at his mercy and grace that you're not getting what you deserve. It's an opportunity and an invitation, but it's a greater invitation that the Son of God reached out his arms on the tree of Golgotha upon that cross and said, before that, but he says, everyone who comes to me, I will certainly not cast them out. Run to Christ and find life. Run to Christ and learn of the one who abolished death, who did away with death. That could be true for you today. If you would trust him, if you would come to him, cry out to him, ask him. Christian, for too long, and this is broad, broad, broad brush. Too long Christians have been content to fade into the woodwork. And we've been content to buckle up and, and wait. Wait for the day when Jesus calls you home or Jesus comes to yank you out of this place. Living like this place can all go to hell and I'm going to go to heaven. Get me out of here, Lord. Well, he'll get you out of here in his time. In the meantime, you, we cannot in this time 
in this place, we cannot afford to be ashamed of the gospel. And even more poignantly, our kids can't afford it. That which is assumed is one generation away from being forgotten. For too many people and too many churches and too many families, the gospel was assumed. Two generations later, it's forgotten. Our kids cannot. And you might think, my kids are grown. I've got kids, grandkids. You have kids that are in this church, that are in this community, that see you. And they will see you as you step out of the woodwork. Our kids, they can't afford it. We can't afford it. One generation will commend his works to another. So praise God for his purpose and grace. Do not be ashamed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. When your word stretches us, stretches our ability to hear it, our ability to preach it, the wondrous truths of God from eternity you have intended to save your people and at the manifestation the arrival of our of our jesus of our lord you have accomplished that salvation and in the age of the spirit now the holy spirit is applying that accomplishment so holy spirit would you come now and apply the finished work of jesus to hearts in this room For some, that means a crossing from spiritual death into spiritual life of crying out to Christ and coming alive to God today. For others, that application is by way of reminder, by way of stirring us up to love and good deeds. That we might take the stand and say the things that we would be faithful to Jesus in every situation with every breath every place that you would take us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.